What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, the Fed raises rates for the eighth time in the last year. Jay Powell says he isn't done, but the markets might be. The market's saying to Jay Powell, I'm not listening to you. La, 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 la. But billionaire hedge fund manager Ray Dalio says he believes Powell, and he's changing his mind about one of his most famous calls, cash no longer trash. Now cash is relatively attractive. So it's attractive in relation to bonds. It's actually attractive in relation to stocks. In an extended, exclusive interview, Dalio is reading the economic signals and warning investors of what's to come with China. We are right at the brink that you could have an economic war with a form of sanctions that would be, if it happened, really shocking to the economy, world economy, much worse than the Russian war. Those big conversations, plus Meta delivered mega financial results this quarter. And even further gains could be ahead if one key competitor feels the squeeze. CNBC's Julia Borston. It's far more likely that you see TikTok being forced to shift its assets over to U.S. ownership or even to have the Chinese parent company divest those U.S. assets. It's Thursday, February 2nd, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. First up today, a Federal Reserve rate hike again. So, as economists expected, the Fed, led by Chair Jay Powell, raised interest rates by 25 basis points, or a quarter of a percentage point. In a news conference after the announcement, Powell said it's premature to declare victory over inflation, and there very well might be one or even two rate hikes still ahead. Generally, it's a forecast of slower growth, some softening in labor market conditions, and inflation moving down moving down steadily, but not quickly. And in that case, uh, if, if the economy performs broadly in line with those expectations, it will not be appropriate to, to cut rates this year, to loosen policy this year. He even called the move part of a cycle of ongoing increases. But the markets rose. It looks like investors believe the Fed is nearing the end of the hiking cycle, even though Powell said nothing of the sort. The latest hike this week marks the eighth increase since March of 2022, all in the pursuit of lowering inflation, which is still near its highest levels since the 1980s. The Fed isn't the only bank making moves. The European Central Bank announced it would raise its interest rate even more than the Fed. They're hiking 50 basis points, and they're warning another half a point increase in March. The Squawk team digested this news and the market's positive reaction on air. Stand Ander by in three, two, one, cue Ander. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Melissa Lee and Mike Santoli. Joe and Becky are off. They're going to be with us tomorrow, but thank you both for 
Waking up at, I don't know, way too early is pretty much just the answer, right? You've been doing it all week, so oh, yeah. God bless this is, you. This is like But today's sort of now. an exciting yeah. one, I would think, because yeah. we had yesterday, and now we've got so much stuff happening, it's we have, to we have the, the afterglow, yeah. The, is that <laughs> the afterglow? All that happened <laughs> yesterday. Okay, yeah, well, exactly. we're, we're going to do this. will be the afterglow party. And the afterglow, Mike, could just be holding on to yesterday's gains exactly. on yeah. top of the gains from before. That's exactly right. So you're up over 6% in January. Right. Uh, yesterday, before Jay Powell's press conference, the market was a bit hesitant. It wasn't really uh, committing one way or the other. And you did tack on about 1% after that. So it's interesting that it takes the S&P 500 and we, we touched this level really briefly in December, but it basically takes you back to late August, literally the day that Jay Powell in Jackson right. Hole mm -hmm. scolded the market for being too optimistic, essentially. And now they're basically just saying, we're giving you the finger. We don't even care what you say. What the market says, you mean? No, or what the Jay Powell saying said. That. The market's saying to Jay Powell, well, I'm not listening to you. La, 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 he's la, la, la. He's also saying he's not listening to the markets because he's, he's saying that he doesn't care that financial conditions have actually eased. Right. He can't control financial conditions. They're going to go and do what they have to do. And he said, I don't see cutting later this year. The markets don't care. Right. So I agree. There's a little bit of, of there, finger. There's a dissonance here. Yeah. But, he but, he, but, he, but he did address it and chalked it up to... Listen, um, maybe the market just thinks inflation is, is going to be a lot more benign than we do. It's going to come down a lot faster, and that could explain how the bond market's priced. Now, that to me was him uh, explicitly trying not to pick a fight with the market and explicitly right. trying not to, to sort of uh, intensify right. this apparent disagreement. But would, um, would I be surprised if Fed officials came out in the coming weeks and sort of jawbone the market lower? No, I, I think right. that's to come. That is to come. They can simply point to the language in the statement. Exactly. And Ongoing say, increases. We have, yeah, plural. I, I, I have to say, I mean, we've got a guest yes. who knows more than, yeah. more than most, but there is a little bit of a see no evil, hear no evil situation going on, I think, in the market. Shares of Facebook parent Meta are soaring. The company's revenue beat estimates and it lowered guidance for total expenses in 2023, citing slower anticipated growth in payroll expenses and cost of revenue. The company also authorized a $40 billion share buyback. For comparison, it bought back about $28 billion of its stock last year. They repeatedly said that 2023 was going to be the year of efficiency, and investors really, really latched onto that. Absolutely. And this was a company where anybody who had watched how the crash happened right. and how the disillusionment uh -huh. happened realized that it was almost entirely within management's control to change the story. 100%. And just literally lop billions of dollars off your spending plans. Julia Borston joins us now with more. Good morning, Julia. Good morning to you, Michael. Meta announcing a $40 billion share buyback program. It also beat revenue expectations. Revenue declined 4% from the year-ago quarter rather than the 6.5% that analysts had expected. Users also surpassed expectations, hitting 2 billion daily active users for the first time. The company even grew its daily active user base in the saturated U.S.-Canada region. CEO Mark Zuckerberg and new CFO Susan Lee calling this the, quote, year of efficiency. The company pulled down its 2023 total expense and capital expenditure estimates. They also say more cuts are in the works. Take a listen. There's going to be there's some more that we can do to improve our, our productivity, speed, and cost structure. And by working on this over a sustained period, I think we'll both build a stronger technology company and become more profitable. Um, I'm very focused on doing this in a way that helps us build better products. And because of that, even if our business outperforms our goals, 
this will stay our management theme for the year. Zuckerberg and Lee laid out some plans to make their ads more efficient as well, including the ads that they have in Reels, what also they described as the opportunity in the click-to-message ad space. Zuckerberg also weighing in on generative AI, certainly a hot topic this quarter. He said it's an extremely exciting new area, and he wants Meta to become a leader in the space, but he said so cautiously. Take a listen. I want to be careful not to kind of get too far ahead of, of the development of it. So we'll, I think you'll see us launch a number of different things um, this year, and we'll talk about them, and we'll share updates on, on how they're doing. Um, I, I do expect that the space will move quickly. I think we'll learn a lot about what works and what doesn't. As for challenges in the advertising space and concerns about the macroeconomic climate, CFO Susan Lee telling me that they still see a lot of uncertainty um, but they're continuing to find efficiencies where they can. Mike? Julia, so clearly the company uh, taking control of those things that it can directly control, obviously the cost side, as you mentioned, CapEx, uh, really being more financially disciplined, that's what the street's been asking for in a lot of ways. What have we learned in terms of trends on the product side, the user engagement side, things like Reels out of this quarter uh, that get to a little more of the long-term market share uh, story against TikTok and things like that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question, Mike. And that's exactly what I asked CFO Susan Lee when I was on the phone with her yesterday. I said, what about TikTok? What kind of threat is it proving to be both in terms of user engagement and in terms of ad dollars? Um, and she said, look, she pointed to Reels. Look at the success of Reels. Reels have been growing incredibly quickly. But what's notable about Reels is for so long, they've been a drag on, on revenue and a drag on the fact that the company is much more profitable when it looks at the ads in these other formats. But Reels is really what's popular in helping them compete with TikTok. They said that by the end of this year or early next year, Reels will no longer um, be a drag and will start to be revenue neutral. After that, it'll start to be accretive. So I think they see that as a key turning point in the potential around Reels, but they do see Reels as as finding a foothold and being able to succeed in this world against TikTok. But there's no question that TikTok is a formidable competitor. Have they ever talked about uh, directly, Julia, the, the notion that TikTok gets banned or TikTok gets watered down? Have you heard from analysts the scenario in which that happens and, and what that, because they're giving that forecast for Reels to be revenue neutral and that's without any sort of TikTok potential kicker. I mean, I'm hearing from some hedge funds that they, they never owned Meta before, but they own it now because they think that TikTok will be banned or watered down in some way, shape or form. You know, this is something that the company itself, that Meta itself has not commented on, but we have heard various analysts comment on. The thing is, is that if TikTok is shut down, it obviously would be massive, not just for Meta, but also for Snap. But the chances of there being immediate action are relatively low. There is this sense that it'll be a long time before there is any specific action um, to, to, to shut down TikTok. And I think the more likely scenario, and this is something that analysts have been looking at, is it's far more likely that you see TikTok being forced to shift its assets over to U.S. ownership or even to have the Chinese parent company divest those U.S. assets. There's so much uncertainty about what actually is going to happen to TikTok and so hard, um, even though there is bipartisan agreement to get things actually done in this space, that I think that uh, that there's no sort of decision, you know, decisive sense of what will happen here. Right. But any negative impact to TikTok would be a positive for Meta. For sure. Uh, Julia, thanks a lot. All right. How do you feel about the, 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 the buyback program, though? Forty billion dollars. is Why? Well, I just want I mean, look, the, the conundrum is they can't go and buy That's massive right. other companies right. from, from a regulatory perspective. But if you think about it, you could have bought 
Twitter, Snap, I mean, Pinterest, all of them, like, in one shot, basically. I mean, assuming the government would allow I mean, if you just think about that, that kind of money, what could you otherwise do with that money that would be a productive use of the money? I'm not saying that this is necessarily non-productive use. It stocks up 20, you know, yeah. you, you could argue that was a very productive use. Or, or you could say, if you wanted to do something over 10 years, wh wh where could that money go? Well, there's no commitment to actually spending $40 billion in nope. stocks at all. And I think it's more of a signal to shareholders that they are on your side. We are on your side and we are listening to you. We're listening to you when it comes to your gripes about our spending on the metaverse. We're right. listening to you. Oh, no, I get that. that. I'm just wondering if you really were going to spend that kind of money, what you would like to do with it. It's, they already have an issue where they have an incredibly profitable core business that does not require that much reinvestment. That's right. what all these tech companies have. And so you're always going to be investing in something that's probably lower return than your core business. Now, if you're Google over the years, you don't care. And you're saying, we're just trying to figure out what the future looks like. We're going to do these other bets, and we're not going to worry about the profitability of them. Um, I mean, it's 10% of the market cap as of yesterday's close, $40 billion of, out of 400 right. So it's a big number, um, but I think it's a different equation than, you know, uh, an ExxonMobil or these other capital-intensive businesses where you do have that trade-off. To me, it's a little more direct. But to think the stock was $88 yes. at its low in Amazing. November. And by the way, staggering. as of yesterday, the consensus target price among analysts was 148 which is basically where the stock was. Right. And so now they, everyone has to chase it, and that's part of why you have this pop today. Right. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, an extended, exclusive interview with Bridgewater billionaire Ray Dalio. This type of recession is not a bad recession. It's a lot less uh, bad than I thought it would be because of the fact of how it's distributing. Digesting the latest Fed hike, making portfolio calls to match it, and the hedge funders take on crypto. I think it has no relation to anything. It's a tiny thing that gets a disproportionate attention. That big conversation is right after this break. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Melissa Lee and Mike Santoli. We are joined by a very special guest this morning. Ray Dalio is at the table. Founder of Bridgewater is here. He joins us for an exclusive interview. And for the first time since he stepped down as co-CIO this fall, we should talk about that as well. But uh, a lot to talk to you about. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. So help us try to understand what's happened. We always talk about the, the economic machine. We've got the Federal Reserve as part of that machine of sorts, at least trying to assess what that machine's going to do. You saw what uh, Jay Powell said yesterday. I think we're all 
trying to make sense of, of where we really are. Okay, well, I mean, these things happen over and over again. We're now in the 12th and a half cycle. You know, these cycles, you know how the cycles work. You're 12 and a half cycles since 1945. 1945 was the new world order, you know, new monetary system. Uh -huh. And you know what happens. So let me take you through it quickly. You provide, you get a funky economy, weakness, and so on. So what we had, of course, in 2020 with the combination of COVID, and then also the move from the right to the left. There was a distribution of wealth. And so how did you do that? The government had to send out a bunch of checks. Yep. And the Federal Reserve, where did the government get the money from? The Federal Reserve lent it. So we have an imbalance. And, of course, that put a lot of money in the system. You've got the demand. You've got the cycle, classic cycle, right? Stimulation, credit becomes debt. Then you have inflation. Then you have a tightness of monetary policy. And so where are we? So we now in a classic spot where we've got uh, a relatively high real interest rate. Real interest rates went from minus 175 basis points to plus right. 175 basis points, right? You've got a cash rate that's relatively high. Cash used to be trashy. Cash is pretty attractive now. You've got an inverted yield Say that curve. again. You said trash is now more attractive? Cash, cash. Is, cash. Cash is trash is what you used to say. Yes, cash was negative right. one and a half, two percent real rates. Terrible. Now cash is relatively attractive. Right. So it's attractive in relation to bonds. It's actually attractive in relation to stocks. You have the classic movement, of course, as rates go up and money becomes tight. You lose the parts of the economy, the parts of the market that are the bubble parts that needed the cash flow. Right. right. So you're seeing it reflected in um, not only, you know, long duration stocks, those that didn't have cash. You, so you see the tech stocks come down, all of that come down. You see private equity, you see venture capital because they needed cash. All of that comes down. The, uh, and then, so you're seeing a very, 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 very classic that we've seen these things for 12, and, we're halfway through a 12th or 13th cycle, right? But what's also happening in that cycle as, since 1945 is that we then have the accumulation of a lot of debt and money. Okay, so we deal with things like the debt ceiling. Does right. the debt ceiling matter? Does it matter how much debt we have? And then you have a situation where there's used to be a free market supply demand, but now you've got the Federal Reserve who is now taking it, buying it on the balance sheet, so it's not the supply demand. So you've got that dynamic very, very classically growing. I don't think people are paying enough attention to the big cycle. There are these short-term cycles. Since World War II, they've averaged about seven, six or seven years, plus or minus about three years. That's what we're in a classic one of those. But we keep building up the debt. And then there were issues in terms of the, the issue of the dollar and what's happening in terms of the world and right. the value of money. So you just said we're halfway through the cycle, which yeah, means there's another half to go. Which way does that go? I well, mean, you're saying so, the cycle's up here and, and you got to go all the way down to here for the cycle to end? Uh, of course, you, you know, you put up the, you put on the brakes. Right. Okay. Then you bring things down. Okay. Now in this, each one of these cycles, you bring them down a little bit differently. What we're, what we have here is that there was quite a lot of bubbles in this. So you could see which sectors are going down. You could see which stocks are going down, right? You see the tech stocks, you see, the, you see real estate, 
going down. Um, residential real estate goes down, but doesn't mean that their families are hurt because the household sector is in a better financial position than it ever was because it, it has received a lot of money. And also, they're benefiting, you know, when we say inflation and you say wages are going up, you see their sector, they're, they're basically benefiting. So you're seeing this type of contraction. So it's going down, and we're having something co close to a stag, let's say a stagflation, meaning maybe three and a half. I think you're going to see inflation come down to this, and then because of the way it's calculated, it'll go up a bit. And so you see that kind of an, an environment with something close to maybe a 1% growth rate, right. something okay. like that, right? Can I just ask you a very baseline question, though? Yeah. Right now... This market, depending on how, what you think this market is, doesn't it actually believes that inflation's coming down, really coming down. I think that the, uh, yeah, and, and think, they don't believe Jay Powell to some degree. Well, I don't think they believe. I think what you're referring to is they don't believe what's in the curve, or, or uh, in other right. words, what's in the curve is a significant easing. Yep. What's and what uh, Jay Powell is saying is steady. Right. Believe steady. You're saying believe steady. Believe you're steady. saying believe what I'm, Jay Powell I, I, is saying. I, right. Right. I, uh, I think because it's the nature of a yield curve and the discounting thing, uh, slope of the yield curve, because both markets are trading. So when you have a bond market trading with a short rate, then you can get that curve. It's not necessarily because everybody smartly plots that out. So I don't think, um, I don't think you're going to see an easing that is built into the curve. So that means that you're going to see, uh, look, I'm not... I'm, I'm never sure I'm right. But I, I think you're not going to see an easing that's equivalent to the building. Believe, I think believe Jay Powell. There's no good reason. Even if you look at the bond price, let's say bond, uh, bond yields, 3.4, 3.5. Let's say you had a 2% inflation. That still means only a 1.4% real rate, which I don't think. So when you look at the bond rate, the bond rate looks like a, a low rate. Um, of course, there are big credit spreads on that. But anyway, so I, I think that you're not going to see the easing. I, I would say that that's probably the easiest, one of the easiest, safest bets that you're not going to see that happen. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see. I think so. I think you're going to see a relatively steady rate. That means that um, that's not built into the curve. That's a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 what do you what, a headwind. So That's how, how do you think about trades that take advantage of that discrepancy in view? That that we sh will be higher if you believe that you will be, you believe that we will be higher for longer, even though the markets do not. That's the right. Markets are positioned for that latter scenario. So what are the trades that take advantage of that discrepancy? Well, so it's your just short tech. Your I mean, well, I've, it's the pure play is straight on the yield curve. In other words, you could play the pure play straight on the yield curve. I wouldn't. Um, of course, interest rate changes have impacts on other markets and so on. But if, if you look at the relative pricing now of, let's say, cash, let's start with cash, and then you go out on the yield curve and you look at that, cash is relatively attractive in relationship to even to equities. But I, when I say equities, there's such a range of the type of equities that we're dealing with. And then we're, uh, so uh, if you want the pure play, you're in, you're in that pure play. Um, I think the interesting question um, has to do with the areas that have cracked and then passing them through to the private markets. Because what's happened in, um, you know, the public versions of them are down. 
Then if you take the private market, venture capital, uh, and um, you got a problem there. You, you've got the mark-to-market question. Uh, and then a lot of these companies, um, then they, uh, they don't have enough cash. And then if they have another down round, another down round is really a problem for not only them as, a com- as their companies, but also for those who are holding them, venture capitals and private right. equity. So you have a mismatch. You have a basic fr- um, problem there. Um, so that's hard to figure out exactly how that's going to play out, but that's going to be a sort of stagnant thing. But I think that this type of recession is not a bad recession. It's a lot less uh, bad than I thought it would be because of the fact of how it's distributing and, and, and shrinking that credit. At the same time, though, we have a real issue for the United States debt in the world because we're selling all this, uh, selling all this debt. You, you know, if you look at wealth, instead of GDP. Wealth is a much better indicator of, of things. Um, GDP is like looking at revenue. Um, how much did you sell? We have borrowed a lot of money, okay? And now we're having a problem selling that money around the world. Right. And, we're, and it's also happening that uh, this political situation, geopolitical situation, is weakening the demand for U.S. bonds. Well, we just were, we're talking about, you know, what a previous Fed chair called the conundrum of lower long-term rates. That means there's a lot of demand for longer-term treasuries at the moment anyway. Um, and, you know, the Fed balance sheet's down by half a trillion dollars from the peak, and here we are not worried too much about, about financing things. Why do you think that's becoming a critical issue? Well, because uh, if you're still looking at the amount of deficits that we're running, right, if you're still at, at and that's a current account, both, both the trade deficit, you still have to sell a lot of bonds to the rest of the world. And for a variety of reasons, um, besides that being a lot, and it's being monetized, okay, so who's the other side of the balance sheet? The other side is the balance sheet has been monetization, except for just the most recent moment. And that just even chronologically is gonna worsen. Then you also have the geopolitical issues which are playing a role. In other words, sanctions have caused a lot of countries to be concerned that they could possibly be sanctioned. And now the, the split is um, there's an internationalization of the RMB. A lot of um, trade and capital flows is in RMB. And China has never chosen to denominate right. a net RMB. You're now seeing that happen. So the amount of, uh, if you look at, let's say, the proportion of not only reserves, but sovereign wealth funds uh, denominated in dollars, it's a lot. That, that is tilting in a certain direction. And then if you look at things like, um, you know, the question is, will we deal with that debt? Right. And, and, and what, there is the debt ceiling. Um, I mean, everybody believes we'll get through the debt ceiling. But the question is, if you get through the debt ceiling, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? It just right. means a pile more debt. So the supply-demand issue, the supply-demand issue for debt, it's not just an American problem. It's a European problem. It's a Japanese problem. Look at the Japanese in terms of yield co- control and the amount that which they're producing that kind of amount of debt. That is, th- those debt assets, in my opinion, in a longer-term basis, are not attractive assets. Cash right now is relatively attractive. But if I was to take it through the cycle, okay, I wouldn't want debt, debt assets, just generally speaking. Let me ask you a separate question, which is you've talked about China. You just mentioned uh, the renminbi. But when you think about, you also talked about what you think is a potential war, frankly, either economic war uh, or physical war 
between the U.S. and China, either over Taiwan or other things. Where do you think that sits in this calculus of yours? Well, we are, you know, th there are five types of wars. There's a trade war, technology war, geopolitical influence war, capital and economic war, and military war. We're in the first four of those wars. And, and um, you're at the brink, and when I brink, I don't think we'll go over, but we are right at the brink that you could have an economic war with a form of sanctions that would be, if it happened, really shocking to the, uh, to the economy, world economy, much worse than the Russian war. We know Russian war had implications in a lot of different ways. If you have with China, that would be a problem. And also the issue of Taiwan. I think that, I think that you're at a point right now that both sides are so scared of that that they're working to set um, a, a floor. There's not an improvement in relationships. There's not much pr prospect of that. But uh, establishing a floor, that's what the last uh, Biden-Xi uh, meeting was about. Right. It's why, why Tony Blinken's going to go over there. It's like, don't, don't, let's not go below that. And I don't think that we probably will go below that. Um, but, we, it, but you can't be sure. At the same time, I think the economic and uh, competitions and so on are going to be very intense. The last time we spoke, it sounded like you were even more hawk not hawkish, but worried, more concerned that actually it would escalate into some kind of military situation or that or that or that China was going to take, try to take Taiwan. And that was going to sort of. Well, to, no, to be, be clear, like I put in my book, I think that there was about a 30 percent chance of a type of civil war and a 30% chance, maybe I'd say now maybe a 35% chance over the next 10 years that you can have a military war in, in, um, in those areas. Those are high numbers, so I, but I'm putting number, but they're still not the probable things. What happened was, um, so let me take the sequence. Um, just before there was uh, the summer, and we were looking at the Ukraine, the United States was thinking about sanctions on China and how China would operate. And then there was a lot of studying about what would the implications of sanctions be. And the implications of sanctions would be economically disastrous. If you wanted to see inflation, it was what came out of Russia would be nothing. So there was a hesitancy. And then Pelosi went over there. And when Pelosi went over there, that was the bottom, in my opinion, that was the bottom of the, of the relationship at, the, at that moment. And, and China had to do a demonstration. It was, and, and then since that point, there's this element of, of risk, risk. So please don't take it that I'm either, I'm confident about right. any of these things. I, as I say, maybe there's a one in three chance over the next 10 years of those kinds of things, depending on how things transpire. And that's a very dangerous thing. The fact that, the, it, that I can say that, and everybody almost can, is living that, is causing big changes in flows. It's causing big changes in who, what businesses are operating where. Businesses are leaving those places. We should talk about the good places. India's benefiting. Indonesia's benefiting. Right. Um, ASEAN countries are benefiting. Um, Saudi Arabia and um, uh, UAE is right. benefiting. So you're seeing these other places. You have to see how wealth is shifting, right? Wealth, right. If, if you just look at how wealth is shifting, you're seeing big increases in some places and big decreases. Can I, can and I ask, if you're Janet Yellen then, or you're the White House, what you would do? A 
about all about all of this that you, the way you've described it? Well, I think I think the big the biggest issue is that there's more spending, and I would say there probably needs to be more spending than we have income, and that's a problem, right? Um, governments run the same as your household or um, a business in that, uh, with two exceptions. They can print money and they can tax, right? So then when you spend more than you earn, the question is, and, and they're going to spend more than they're going to earn, uh, where are you going to get the money from? Are you going to get it from taxes? And if you get it from taxes, people fight because they don't want to give up their money. Or are you going to get it from printing the money? And so how do you achieve that balance? Because it's, do you spend less? Right. Well, it's a tough environment to spend less. You have to spend more on, de uh, on defense. You have to spend more on rebuilding. The green initiative is expensive. I mean, we could, education is expensive and so on. So there's a dilemma that she is sitting in, that we or we as a country are sitting in. So, um, you know, how do you solve that, that, that problem? I think that, um, you know, if you were to, let's say, take the bigger picture, there's a lot of things that you can invest in, invest in that will produce returns. And I think, uh, uh, for example, I don't think we invest nearly as much in, in the basic things like great education and making sure that certain areas do, right. do not have conditions that are substandard conditions. And right. so to invest in those things that are going to produce productivity. Ed education's a good thing. Infrastructure's a good thing. Other, right. other things. But it's a, it, it, this is part of a cycle, a big cycle right. that has happened over and over and over again, where, you know, you, you, the productivity right. goes down. The in that cycle, can I just ask, there's, a, there's an op-ed today uh, from Charlie Munger. Mm -hmm. We always talk to you about crypto. I don't know if you saw this op-ed. He effectively said that crypto should be outlawed. Just and completely. he cited communist China as having taken a wise move. By in, doing that? Yes. You have been, I believe, a supporter of Bitcoin. Uh, or at least uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, 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 curious, crypto curious. Okay. Where, where, where do, has anything changed for you? In uh, that? Um, uh, yeah, just everybody. Well, let me state what I believe about crypto and with um, Bitcoin, and what I've you know pretty much uh, always been. I think it's been you know quite amazing that for 12 years it's accomplished this, but I think it has no relation to anything. Okay, in other words, it moves, it has no relation. It's a tiny thing that gets a disproportionate attention. You know, the value of crypto, uh, crypt, uh, Bitcoin is less than a third of the value of Microsoft stock. You could go into industries, bi right. biotech and many other industries are more interesting than Bitcoin. It's not gonna be an effective money, it's not an effective storeholder wealth, it's not an effective medium of exchange, but we are in a world in which money as we know it is in jeopardy, right? We are printing too much, and mm -hmm. it's not just the United States, all the reserve currencies, the, what's going on in Euroland, what's going on in yen. And so in that world, the question is, what is money and how is that going to operate? So when we look at something like China's RMB, and then you take the digital RMB, um, I think you're going to see that become more and more a thing. So when when things start to open up in an evolutionary way, people are going to start to say, where is my safe uh, storeholder wealth? And as you have China denominate more of its trade in renminbi, then naturally uh, those who are going to hold renminbi, if Saudi Arabia sells oil in renminbi and then buys things from China in renminbi, 
when they get it, they're going to hold more renminbi. It's going to be a higher percentage of their. And so um, I think the question over the next uh, number of years is really what is money, not just as a medium of exchange, but a storehold of right. wealth. That sounds like a argument for Bitcoin. Or Bitcoin or for some of, digital of, of bitcoins. Yeah. Of Maybe. No, I think if you, want a, if you want a digital currency, you have to deal something different. I don't think that the stable coins are good uh, uh, because then you're getting a fiat currency again. I think that what you really would, what would be best is an inflation-linked um, coin. Right. In other words, something where basically you would say, okay, this is going to give me buying power because every individual wants, what do they want? They want to secure their buying power right. if you want to save. Now, if you put it in Bitcoin, it goes like this. Who knows what happens? Right. If you put it into something, the closest to, thing to that is an inflation index bond and so on. But if you, put, uh, if you created a coin that says, okay, this is buying power that I know I could save in and put my money in um, over a period of time and then I can transact in anywhere, I think that that would be a good coin. But you, so I think you're going to see probably the development of coins that you haven't seen that probably will be, end up being attractive, uh, viable coins. I don't think Bitcoin is it. So I want to go back to the markets before we let you go. <laughs> it sounded before like you thought cash is, cash is king right now out of, out of all the choices that you can make. Um, where do you think the stock market is? Do you think that we have priced in what could be a, you know, a recession or what is a recession? Did we see the worst of it in October? Where are we right now in terms of value? I think that, uh, first of all, when we talk about pricing in the recession, I think the first thing you have to do is you've priced in the discount rate. So what has happened, the most important thing is you've changed the discount rate. Every investment is a lump sum payment for a future cash flow. And you put in the discount rate. So now you've moved the discount rate. That discount rate is not going to be materially changing, right? So we're not going to go back to the old discount rate and prices are not going to go back to where they were. Then you start to have the knock-on effect on the economy. I mean, to me, it looks like on, on, on that that, you, you know, you have something, um, substandard growth, right? You have that, uh, when we call it a recession, we have, I can tell you, is it 1% growth or something like that, but it's a fairly stagnant growth that is not hurting the household sector as much as you would think in terms of that. So that becomes tolerable for longer, which I, I think keeps that. So then you look at the, the markets as a whole. The markets as a whole look, um, uh, they, they were obviously, um, I would say, the interest rate changes were obviously had to come. The impact on the other markets had to come. They have come. They have right. been into the price. So now you're going to have probably a tightening or a tighter monetary policy than existed. And that's a net negative for the stock market, but not in such a big number that it's like a big bearish thing. So when I look at the market as a whole, I would say, OK, well, now it seems closer to fairly priced, probably still a bit high, given that whole picture. Right. Ray Dalio, uh, we need to thank you. You got to come on back because I want to hear more about uh, your new life post uh, post uh, co CIO role, but uh, we're out of time. But thank you for uh, an education this morning. Thank you for Great to me. see you. Thanks. I want to thank you, Melissa Lee, for hanging out. Pleasure. Mike Santoli for Good hanging out all week, week and waking up early. God yeah. bless you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. That's it for Squawk Pod today. Thank you for tuning in. Squawk Box is typically hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. They're all back together tomorrow from a special location. We are going to be joined uh, by Joe and Becky from Pebble Beach tomorrow morning. So uh, make sure to set your alarm. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Remember, you can get the smartest takes and analysis from that TV show right into your ears if you follow Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.